The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Lust Free Dinner with David Platt edition. It's Wednesday, April 5th, 2017. On today's show, S-Town is the latest smash hit podcast from This American Life and Serial. Tells the story of a brilliant clock repairer stranded in an Alabama town he professes to loathe. And then Ghost in the Shell is a would-be Hollywood blockbuster starring Scarlett Johansson as a cyborg, a synthetic robot featuring a transplanted human brain. It's uh, been met with poor ticket sales and a controversy surrounding uh, its casting of a white lead for what had been an Asian character in the manga source material. We're joined by Aisha Harris to discuss the film and also the so-called whitewashing controversy surrounding it. And finally, the vice president of the United States has said he refuses to eat a meal alone with a woman who is not his wife. Wife. Is this a courtly anachronism, workplace sexism, or yet another cultural fault line in American life, or all three? To be determined, we're joined today by, very specially, by the uh, CEO of Atlas Obscura, host of the Political Gab Fest, co-host, I should say, co-panelist, David Plotz. David. Thanks for having me here, guys. Okay, so this is kind of the concept, as I understand it, is kind of a yin yangy swap between the two uh, Gab Fests. Uh, at Slate. So we're, we traded out Dana Stevens for David Plotz this week. And of course, we're joined by uh, Julia Turner, Slate's uh, editor. Hey, Julia. Hi. Uh, I'm excited about this crossover episode. But now that we talk about the mechanics of the swap, it strikes me that swapping David for Dana for our one week crossover is a little weird because David is not the Dana of the political gab fest and Dana is not the David of this gab fest. Wait, who's the David of this gab fest? You or Steve then? <sighs> I don't know. And who's the Dana of our show? Dana is the John, and John is the Dana. I think that can be agreed. Um, You know, acute observers, universally beloved. But I, but I don't know. Maybe it's not like with the Beatles. Maybe we don't map onto each other perfectly. Mm -hmm. That seems way too reasonable. That's like way too sane and reasonable. But the thing is, you and I are both robots. But yet, I'm not a robot on our show. That's the weird thing. Whereas you are a robot on your show. In that you're you're a robot playing a crank. Yes. And I'm uh, a robot. I'm a human playing Played a robot. robot. Yeah. So I'm I'm the ghost in the shell of the Culture <laughs> Gap Fest. <laughs> All right. Anyway, uh, listen to the Political Gap Fest this week to hear our beloved Dana sparring with John and Emily, and keep listening to hear what happens when we uh, check out David's cultural practices. Here, here. All right, let's dig in. S Town is a seven-part podcast from the creators of Serial and This American Life. It begins with a kind of a true crime gloss when uh, our reporter narrator, Brian Reed, begins to follow up on some intriguing emails he's received from an eccentric fan in Alabama. Uh, That fan insists that his hopelessly corrupt town and county are covering up a murder. The murder turns out to be nothing but a goose chase, really, but what follows is a ravishing character study of that eccentric man. John B. McLemore, he's a crank autodidact gadfly who hates the small town that he's living in in Alabama and hates himself for staying almost more acutely, even though amidst the Southern Gothic ruins, he's built, as we discover, a somewhat extraordinary uh, existence. Why don't we listen to a clip? We are one of the child molester capitals of the states. We have just an incredible amount of police corruption. We have the poorest education. We've got 95 churches in this damn county. 
we'll have two high schools, no secondary education, and we got Jeebus, because Jeebus is coming, and global warming is a hoax, you know, there's no such thing as climate change and all that. Yeah, I, uh, I, I'm in an area that just hasn't advanced, for lack of a better word. I don't have to eat a Tums here. Sorry about that. Oh, it's one of those awful cherry-flavored ones. That would be the first one to hop out. Is your stomach bothering you? <laughs> oh, I have constant acid reflux. You know, I've had it all my life. Julia, this is a runaway hit, uh, the way Serial was. Uh, millions and millions of people are downloading it. Unlike Serial, it can be downloaded in one giant gob and then binged through. Uh, presumably, you listened to the whole thing. What would you make of it? I think this is a necessary and excellent evolution in the Serial company and also in just the evolution of podcasting. I thought this was excellent. And I think it does itself many favors and Missing Richard Simmons none by coming out on the heels of Missing Richard Simmons, which we talked about a few weeks ago. But that show, to me, pointed up all of the woes of serialized storytelling as a podcast trick and the notion of foregrounding the reporter and their hunt for the truth as the arc of a story, which worked well in the first serial, but quickly became a tired trope. And in the case of the Missing Richard Simmons podcast, became a, a, I think, morally bankrupt way to conduct journalism. And I think there's some interesting debates about this show and the story it tells and uh, how moral or immoral it is. But I found it to be incredibly well made and profoundly humane. And I believe that it is on the side of rightness and justice and truth. Mm -hmm. um, David, I think we're going to divide the conversation in two, really, and have a non-spoiler first part. And um, I think it's necessary to spoil the show to really do it justice in a discussion of it. First, I'm just curious whether you agree. This is it's been described as as a deeply empathetic, um, you know, beautifully produced, uh, gorgeous seems to be the word um, I, I, I hear most often about it, um, but not without controversy. What do you make of it? I agree with Julia's assessment of it. I, mean, I think it's. I listened to it in a gulp. Essentially, um, I found it beautiful to listen to. Brian Reed, I think, is an extraordinary reporter and narrator. My wife is a radio person too, and she's just in awe of the tape that he's got and then his the the incredibly conversational, natural, human way that he is part of the, the show. I, I would also add to what Julia said is one thing that's particularly exciting about this show is that podcasting is it's like being present at the Big Bang still, that these molecules are coming, they're being created. We don't know what life forms are going to come out of it. We don't know if planets are going to be formed or stars or black holes, that there's this invention that's happening in podcasting every week and someone comes up with a new form and it's you get to watch it and, and play with it and to see the This American Life and Serial Crew um, bring their mastery to something new is exciting. And now, now everyone's going to have some this is the sort of short story or this is the this is the novel that has now been turned into mm -hmm. this the, the nonfiction novel as podcast and so now everyone's going to experiment with nonfiction novels as podcast no one will do it as well but it's so exciting just to see the form take shape uh, mm -hmm. in the hands of people who really know what they're doing right and that was that was the risk here in a way right is that they've got a set of highly developed Pavlovian uh, cues audio cues that they developed over you know 
decades of doing this American life and, and serial. And they apply these to a situation in which, in fact, there are very few obvious genre satisfactions, even though they raise those expectations. I mean, it has a true crime aura to it at first. It turns into a character study. Uh, that, Julia, isn't that what's most revelatory about it is that um, what it lacks in a uh, treasure hunt style uh, uh, payoff, it uh, pays back in spades with uh, depth, nuance, and humanity. Well, and also it acknowledges that that's what it's going to deliver not quite up front, but, um, you know, through the end of Serial, you wondered whether you might find out, like, who done it. The Bergdahl season of Serial was essentially actually a meditation on the complexities of bureaucracy, the military, and the human psyche, but sort of tried to create a cliffhangeriness around that inquiry that felt very forced, even though actually I think in the end I found that season satisfying once I came back to it and listened to the end of it. Uh, and then Missing Richard Simmons, I think, was like a total moral misfire. And here it's clear that they knew what they had and then they shaped the story around what they had found. I mean, in fact, it's the kind of story that we've complained a lot about lately, right? It's a tale of what it's like to live in a small town where people probably voted for Trump, right? And there's been a huge debate among the media. Should we be reporting about these people? Do we, are we overemphasizing this, you know, small set of people possibly right. primarily racist? I felt that. Yeah, yeah. Or are yeah. we under, are we undercovering or overcovering these people? And uh, yet this escape, uh, this, this sort of escapes that problem. I also think this show is so specifically human that it can't possibly be trying to make a political point and it would be a mistake if it were. But sometimes it's evasions of the political are a little troubling. Like it it sort of is like, by the way, this town is super racist, gonna stipulate that up top, gonna stipulate that I'm not racist, and then just kind of keep going and spend mm -hmm. a lot of time with these people and not come back to it that much. But Steve, you have family in Alabama. Like does this show evade the politics of place or perfectly situate humans within them? So I have in-laws from almost exactly that part of the world. I mean, it's slightly further south in Alabama, down towards the Florida panhandle, and if anything, more benighted um, in some respects. Uh, so this struck a real chord. It was very familiar to me. On the specific issue of how to deal with the politics, it, it recreated vividly the dilemma you have when you're in the presence of of really virulent Southern racism that I think um, self-dramatizes in the presence of Yankees. Um, you know, there's a self-consciousness about having this, you know, carpetbagger in the room and everyone plays to it and plays up to it in order to see your response. And they do that with, um, with the narrator. But let me pivot the conversation slightly by saying, um, I didn't like this. Part of the problem I have with the apparatus of This American Life is it's gotten so good at the Pavlovian cues and the rhythms of a certain kind of storytelling that you can place almost anything inside the vessel and make it work dramatically. Um, it's, it's a technique more than it is an art at this point to me. And what they had was a, an astonishing character in John B. McLemore, um, but they had very little narrative shape. And I think if you were to go back and re-listen, you might agree with my principal criticism, which is there's an enormous amount of narrative teasing that doesn't pay off at all, and and also an enormous amount of padding. I mean, it, it, all of the uh, 
aspects of the quote-unquote treasure hunt. That was the phrase that really put me against it. And I thought that that sort of teased the rest of it as a genre piece in a new direction. That turns out to be a complete dead end. Um, There are so many blind alleys in this, to my mind, uh, that went nowhere and did nothing to contribute to this supposedly human and empathetic portrait, which I thought was real and deserved to be told. But um, at seven hours, I was real. I was really shocked at how much of it was. Um, so your objection is aesthetic and not moral. Like you feel like the story is told in too shaggy a way and doesn't spend enough time with the mystery of who John McLemore was. All right. So let me state uh, with complete clarity: from this point on, we are going to spoil S Town. So if you haven't listened to it or haven't listened to all of it, you're going to want to skip ahead. As a cue for where you want to skip ahead to, we're going to play music underneath the spoily section of the discussion. If you skip ahead and you still hear that music underneath our voices, you should continue skipping ahead. If you don't hear the music, then you're in safe waters. The real pivot that the show makes is at the end of the second episode, you discover that this vivid character uh, whose voice, you know, he's just a, he's just a, one of life's natural monologuers, John B. McLemore has killed himself. Uh, and then the rest of the show essentially is an exploration of his character, his decision to kill himself, and what the kind of quality and character of his own life was. Um, the Vox argument is that him having killed himself, he really wasn't in a position to give permission for this exploration. I think he invited it when he first got in touch with this American life. This guy uh, was faced with one of the really archetypal and excruciating decisions that intelligent Southerners make, which is whether or not to be meritocratically creamed off and move to the Northeast and move away. And he decides to stay and he hates himself for it. And I think, David, one of the reasons he reaches out to this American life is he just, he wants an ombudsperson to come and just see his own extraordinary self as it is deposited in this cultural wasteland and reflect back to him how stranded he is and and at least reprieve him a little bit from how incredibly lonely and isolated he feels. Um, And and he got that. Uh, And not only that, he got this kind of extraordinary gift, which was his life story told to the world, which I think he profoundly would have wanted. But Steve, what I don't understand is you, a a moment ago, your beef with this was that it's that it's that it's teasing a plot that it isn't there. It's teasing. There's a treasure hunt. There's it teased a murder that didn't happen. It teases a treasure hunt that isn't a real treasure hunt. But then you, in your actual quite eloquent description of the show just now, you said this is a character study of this person who wants to be studied and who is fascinating. And that to me is you've just justified the show. Like I don't, I don't, I don't know why, why you, why you're, why you're upset with the narrative which i think it's i think it, brian reed makes it very clear almost from the beginning this is not going to be a plot driven exercise mm-hmm. this is not really about a murder it's not really about a treasure hunt this is about an exploration of a human being who wants as you say to be explored and to my mind the show does that in beautifully the question of whether they should have included his suicide and continued to cover his life after he killed himself which is an incredible tragedy and a a real moral decision for the set of journalists involved here. I do think the fact that he reached out to this American life and that he and Brian Reed, the host, came to a real friendship and understanding and that it was clear that he felt understood by Brian and wanted to be understood by Brian gives implicit permission for almost everything else that follows. There is one moment in the show where 
Reed makes a decision to share something that Macklemore asked him not to share uh, about a relationship Macklemore had with a man in the town when the show begins to explore his sexuality. And I found the actual writing of that passage and the reasons that um, Reed lists for feeling comfortable sharing that to not be that well done. I think he... But, but Macklemore's like, an atheist, and therefore he's oh he's dead. He can't be and harmed by the, it because he doesn't believe in an afterlife, so he couldn't be harmed by it. Right, and which is sort of a you can't libel the dead. Uh, I don't know if I don't know if that usually applies to sources or not. Um, and then there's uh, the final one, which is like it's a, trying to understand other people is good, and that's weak. Like that final it, that final one is both true, but like a journalist could use that to excuse any act of um, abusing the trust of a source. And and I found the first two arguments there much more persuasive than the third. But apart from that, I, I, do, I don't think there's a moral problem here. Um, Neither do I. So you just think there's an aesthetic one? Yeah, I thought, I thought first of all, it's absurd at seven hours. I think that, that in order to bulk it to seven hours, they had to, um, they had to milk and exploit these, these um, kind of false starts uh, and teasers. Um, I thought an enormous amount of what goes on between Tyler Goodson, this kind of protege figure, and him is left too inconclusive. Um, uh, relative to the, I mean, there's just a lot of false drama to my mind. Like the the town clerk supposedly suppressing a list of people who should have been phoned first about his death. I mean, all of it's kind of suffused with an aura of fake mystery that I really resented relative to the kind of self-congratulation that the piece is built around, which is that we, in fact, didn't want, you know, we didn't need genre payoffs. It, it, it could have been done at three to four hours and I think that would have taken more courage because it would have taken admitting earlier on that what this is really is a portrait of this man and not... Um, wow. I just so disagree with that. I don't... I mean, I think... I, With one caveat, which is that I think the... You're right that the, the, the town clerk piece of it, I think, was stretched and and the, the that list, who's on the list and who was called, that there's probably, you know, half an hour there that, that could have been smooth. But, I mean, doesn't, I maybe it's my own experience that listening to something at seven hours, I didn't listen to a single other podcast since the thing has come out because I wanted to be immersed in this. And I was never bored. I didn't tune out any of them. Um, yeah. I, I, so it... I guess it does for me that the the I didn't feel that I was being uh, to repeat the point I said a second ago. I didn't feel I was being teased with story. I felt like I was being put placed in a universe and learning about somebody in a in a rich, deep, profound way. Hmm. It was like a mumblecore. It was like a mumblecore movie of a podcast. I and I was transfixed by it and not bored. And I also felt. I just didn't feel that he was presenting those leads in the kind of like, what have we here, like Hercule Poirot mustache twirling way at all. Like he was very receded as a narrator, but very human. And he, to me, what he showed was like reporting not as heroism, but reporting as just asking the next obvious question. And like, you know, there is there was a question about what the town clerk was up to. And he does the work and talks to the people and it's a little mysterious and then he posits the the conclusion which is like the town clerk listened to him commit suicide on the phone according to her account and maybe was too traumatized to call everybody in time and relive it all and describe what happened and he I didn't feel like he held that apart and then was like oh I guess she's just human like it to me it just seemed 
driven by curiosity rather than showmanship. Can, can, can I ask a, a plot question, actually? Which is, is it possible, again, this is a super spoiler, that he killed himself because he was broke? They don't really explore that at all. But one of the things that seems to be, there's no money. There's nothing, there's no left, nothing left after he dies. And maybe he actually is financial pressure. I, I found that weird. That's usually a reason why, that's a reason why people get panicky is they don't have any money to do anything anymore. It's not clear he had any money left. Well, although the final episode posits the alternate chemical explanation, which is that he's made himself crazy that by, was amazing. by messing with mercury in his clock fixing business. And that the sort of paranoia and changes personality seems like it could have made him susceptible to all kinds of potential. I mean, whatever you can't suicide is the is the un the unsolvable mystery. Hmm. All right. Well, um, S Town is a podcast from Surreal and This American Life. It's a huge hit. Everyone loves it except me. Check it out. <laughs> uh, go to facebook.com slash culturefest and tell me what a, a twerp I am. But Ju- Julia, you're so right about missing Richard Simmons. Sorry. Like it, 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 this show really just makes you think, wow, that show was so wrong, so off base. It has all the things you're talking about. Yeah, it was, that, it, was that. Deep, it was deeply fraudulent. I didn't find this, for the record, I did not find this fraudulent at all. I actually think it perfectly honored the memory of this extraordinary man whose voice really insinuates itself into your consciousness along with the southern gothic flavor of the whole thing i just i really thought it was inelegantly long and self-important all right moving on (laughs) (laughs) to conclude a short a short segment All right. Well, before we move on to our next segment on the movie Ghost in the Shell, why don't we uh, talk about our business? We surely have some. Julia Turner, what do you got? Several pieces of business this week. First, uh, the Culture Gab Fest's first ever live show in Washington, D.C. is approaching on April 19th at 7.30 p.m. at the Hamilton, a very cool venue in Washington. So if you'd like to spend the evening with us, head on over to slate.com slash live for more details and to buy tickets. Uh, we also want to remind you guys that Slate will be bringing two live shows, Represent with Aisha Harris, who is about to join us for our Ghost in the Shell segment, and Trumpcast featuring our own Jacob Weisberg, Jamel Bowie, and the wonderful Virginia Heffernan to the Tribeca Film Festival. Represent's show will be on April 24th at 645 at the SVA Theater. Trumpcast is on April 30th at 815, also at the SVA Theater, where we did a live show last year. Great, great venue. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, tickets for those are available at Slate.com slash live. And Slate Plus members, you can get 25% off your tickets to these shows and all festival screenings and events. If you're not a member, sign up at Slate.com slash Culture Plus. Uh, finally, speaking of Plus, our segment today for Plus members is about the things we do now that future humans will find deplorable and barbaric. Uh, you can get segments like this from all kinds of Slate shows, plus ad-free podcasts if you join Slate Plus. You'll also be supporting Slate and the journalism that we do. If you're curious about Slate Plus, we have a particularly great deal right now on our new Slate iOS app. Uh, if you download it at slate.com app, you can hear our bonus segments and our ad-free shows free for 90 days. They're incredibly easy to find and use in the app. It's actually the easiest way to access those bonus segments and the ad-free feed. You can get all of the benefits of Slate Plus free for those three months at slate.com app. Okay, on to Ghost in the Shell. 
Ghost in the Shell is uh, based on a classic Japanese manga over the course of several comic books, a TV series, and a highly regarded 1995 film have all told versions of the story of Major Matoko Kusanagi, a cyborg with a synthetic robot body and a human brain. Uh, together, they make a moody contemplation on the nature of consciousness, memory, and the self. They're now all embedded in a Scarlett Johansson starring action picture. It's directed by Rupert Saunders. It stars uh, ScarJo, as I said, and Juliet Binoche is her benevolent-seeming designer, handler, mother, confessor. Let's listen to a clip. There's an echo box up here. Someone's scanning data traffic. Let's see who's worth this kind of surveillance. Accessing hotel security network. Got it. 43rd floor. Someone contact the president's staff. Someone's watching him. Dr. Osman, what is it you want from us? I think it's more about what Hanker Robotics can do for you. 73% of this world is woken up to the age of cyber enhancement. You really want to be left behind. My people embrace cyber enhancement, as do I. There's no one who really understands the risk to individuality, identity, messing with the human soul. <laughs> I feel bad for Ghost in the Shell that that's the clip. Like, we can debate this movie and and its qualities, but that, that clip undersells it. It's not... As bad as that clip makes it sound, or as generic. I really, I experienced it as exactly that bad. <laughs> it was pretty bad. <laughs> okay, so first let me introduce Aisha Harris, of course, a Slate contributor and host of the Represent podcast. Aisha, thanks for joining us to discuss this movie. Um, Aisha, I'm going to just turn quickly to Julia. Julia, it seems maybe you're the, you're the person at the table who wants to defend Ghost in the Shell. Go. Oh, that's strong. That's putting it strongly. I, so... I I speak from a position of abject ignorance, as usual. I don't know, you know, apart from having heard about this manga and anime for years, I've never seen it. I've never seen the comics. I've never seen the original movie. It, you know, it's very apparent from watching this what an inspiration the original movie was to The Matrix. And as a sci-fi thriller that has some ideas in it that are plausible and interesting and is visually stylish and has like a bit more soul than a, a you know action shoot 'em up it was passable i thought it it just it's not all like i'm in the like the hotel security system is breached someone brief the president like that makes it sound like executive like that Kiefer Sutherland show like it makes it it makes it sound less interesting than it is whether it successfully executes the things that are interesting about the original the degree to which it undersells them and what we make of the uh, you know, the act of casting a white actress in the role of this beloved, iconic Japanese figure all remain very much on the table. But it's not as bad as that clip makes it sound. Um, a David, better or worse than that clip or just about oh, I, right? I agree with Julia. It's slightly better than that. It was a perfectly plausible way to pass, pass a couple of hours. But it's um, and it's beautiful. I mean, it's like stylish and like the visual imagination of it, I think, is is Although it exceptional. Looks a lot like. Blade Runner and the Fifth, Fifth Element. Element. Like it's not, okay, fine. it's not, right. it, to me, it's not as surprising or interesting a version of a tech dystopian future as her, another movie in which ScarJo plays. Yeah. ScarJo is forever playing. Yeah. Nobody will fucking cast her as a human anymore. Yeah. Under the Skin, Lucy, this and uh, her. I mean, she's. There's another one too. Well, I mean, she's also like in the Avengers, that whole yeah, I world. Guess. Right. But she's, she's a human, just a superhuman there. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I can't remember any, I saw it two nights ago i 
I don't think I remember anything. She's her name's Major, right? I remember yeah, that part. Just call her Major. That's about it. Well, they leave out the Japanese part of it. Right. Until... Yes. We'll get to yes. it in a minute. But I want to hear Aisha. <laughs> what, <laughs> I found this movie completely unengaging. I'm curious to know what you thought. Um, I I think I fall somewhere in the middle. Whereas I thought, you know, going into it, and I had actually watched for the first time the anime version, the original anime version, uh, right before. Uh, so I I had that percolating in the back of my mind and watching it i was like okay this is way less confusing than than the anime version which is super super opaque and like ruminative and 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 super deep but like is plot wise and like existentially it's it doesn't all like they don't explain things like and i think that's to both it's you know that's part of its appeal, the original version, is that they don't explain everything. Whereas this, with this movie, they explain everything. <laughs> At the very beginning, there's a bunch of texts like explaining what happened, why ScarJo's character is like now a cyborg. Um, Juliette Binoche does a lot of explaining. Um, there's so much explaining. And this is clearly made for an international audience and not just a, a um, Japanese audience. Um so I was fine with that. It was fine. I, I The visuals are great. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah, this is cool. ScarJo is like breaking things and, and, and shooting things. And she wears a cool bodysuit. And then the twist happens. And maybe we don't want to jump to that yet. But then the twist happens. And I was like, God damn, like this didn't have to, mm. the way they did this, it would have been a perfectly fine, probably still whitewashing, but not as egregiously whitewashing like without the way they they throw in this twist Mm -hmm. that happens like about the last third of the movie okay well i think we can get to the twist i mean if this movie had made 200 billion dollars over the weekend we could hash out you know what formula they had hit on that we don't quite get but it didn't really it's sort of bombing and one of the reasons it's bombing and you get into this in your piece on slate is that um you know they really violated the original spirit of the material and along the way to um an act of pretty severe racial insensitivity. They they essentially whitewashed the film. How did they do that? Wait, how- wait. Can I? Why do you say that? That's why the film was failing. I didn't know. I mean, I well, went to the theater. People- there was there was nobody in it, but I don't. I didn't feel like that the crowds outside were not going into it because well, they were the, worried about ScarJo being cast in it. No, I think, but to the extent that you're drawing in um, a what they called the pre-sold element because people are familiar with the source material. That geek culture, that online culture was offended going in and it had bad press going in. Maybe that's not the only reason. I think it's also a poorly constructed I mean, it's sort movie, of, but. It's, it's hard. You have to speculate a bit. But it does seem like, you know, this movie in particular has had a lot of press about the fact that Scarlett Johansson's character um, is played by Scarlett Johansson. Um, and, you know, I think even like the day before... I went or the same day I went to the screening, which was like two days before the movie was actually released already. People like there were people who had seen the movie were talking about the fact that this twist happened. And the twist is that turns out in her past life um, when she wasn't a cyborg, she was actually a Japanese woman and that had already been percolating. People were already mad about that. And I feel like there are a lot of people, even a small sample size, but a lot of people um, tweeted at me after my piece dropped that day that like, they're like, oh, I'm not going to go see this now. Like if they had not done that twist, it seems like that was just like the last nail in the coffin of like making her actually be a Japanese woman. It's like, right. Then was, why don't you just cast a Japanese yeah, woman? It was, it was pretty <laughs> fatuous cake and eat it to gesture, right? They yeah. could have just gone with it with an Anglo actress and 
she's part of the pan racial world of this future city or whatever. Right. Right. And made it a, I mean, she's Scarlett Johansson. She's, you know, bankable star. Um, but instead they tried to have it, have it both ways. And it, it it's a uh, clunky to put it mildly. I mean, one other thing I would want to point out is like, well, obviously none of us here are Asian. <laughs> um, so it's, it's, it's hard to kind of talk about it from that point of view, but from my understanding of talking to others who are of Asian descent and, of like who are more familiar in Eastern culture and in Japanese culture. Um, anime has a very long, complicated history with whitewashing in general, or just like having these very, having these um, animated characters who can sometimes look ambiguous in a way that, you know, is probably separate from this whole issue and not something we need to go into. But I think it's worth acknowledging that like there are it has its own sort of history within even outside of the Western world of like complicating the way these characters look more European or more white. I didn't even think the whitewashing that ScarJo whitewashing was the most racist part of the movie. The most racist part was that scene that we just listened the African, to. The, the one, African, the one, like, yeah, the he's one. He's African. He doesn't, he yeah, doesn't know. He's African. There's the African <laughs> Federation. The, the place where they're living has no identity and it's pan-ethnic. But like the African Federation, those guys are. They're colorful Africans in their African robes. I mean, we should stipulate like they're, you know, I think it is great that we have these conversations about casting, that this is an area of urgency, that we're thinking about this more often. I do think that this story and this film, there's a plausible case to make that there's a version of this movie that you make with ScarJo in the role. That's fine, both because of the ethnic ambiguity that's embedded in the this genre and then also because of the specifics of this plot, which is this is a soul, could be any soul, implanted in a mechanized body. Like it's it's ex- explicitly a manufactured form that is no ethnicity other than robot, really, and could be designed to resemble whatever. So there's, there's a way to do this that um, is more and less graceful, I think. Uh, and you can debate the merits of it any which way. But I agree that the twist really makes it hard to sit with that defense. Very quickly, I find myself exhausted by the Philip K. Dick metaphysics of science fiction. Mm-hmm. They've been around. I mean, Blade Runner treated it very successfully. Now Westworld, flickering glitches, past lives of my human. What's the nature of consciousness? Can we maybe like lighten up a little bit in this genre or do something new? I don't know if it should be lighter. I do think that and also to your point about there could have been a better movie with this twist. I think the better movie with the twist would have been had we taken that Philip K. Dick and all of that stuff and added a complication like I write, wrote in the piece of, of the fact that they are transplanting, you know, Asian souls into white bodies. Mm-hmm. There's so much to be mined from yeah. that that hasn't really been mined before. If it has, I don't know about it. But like this is this would have been a perfect chance to do that. And the film does not even try to do that. Right. They could have made that explicit and it would have added a whole new terrain to apply some of that metaphysics to that would have made it really fascinating. Okay. Well, the movie's Ghost in the Shell. Is it called Ghost in the Shell? <laughs> Who, can say? Ghost confuse me. Who can say? Exactly. <laughs> I'm glitching. I'm flickering. Uh, back to other Scarlet. Who cares? <laughs> Don't go see it. <laughs> yeah, it. It sucks. Don't go see it. But if you loved it, you can come to Facebook.com slash Culture Fest and hurl abuse at uh, all four of us. All right. Moving on.
In 2002, Mike Pence told the publication The Hill that he will not eat dinner alone with a woman other than his wife, and he won't attend events that feature alcohol with uh, without her by his side. This was recently exhumed in a uh, Washington Post profile of his wife. Um, David, we have to take advantage immediately of you being on the show. Um, you're a DC denizen and a watcher. What do you make of the story? Is this one of these things that just gets kind of coughed up in the chumming of a new administration and ultimately it's uh, relatively trivial? Is it somehow important from an HR or ethical point of view? Is this something that's his own right in a way? Does it show a kind of respect for the opposite sex or a total disrespect for equality of opportunity? What do you make of this very DC story? Well, first of all, it's in no sense the first version of this. I think there have been numerous conservative Republican legislators who over the past 25 years have made the same point. I seem to remember Trent Lott was this way. The former Senate majority leader um, had this rule. This Pence's story, this quote came from him in 2002. My wife, Hannah, has covered Christian uh, evangelicals over much of her career. And it's this is a very common theme. So it's 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 not it's definitely not news, right? It's it's it is something that's well known. It's been well known in the culture. It's been well known in Washington culture. So it, all it is is that suddenly some people on the left became aware of it and and um, got upset about it. I mean, I think like I think it's like a small point in general. I think people's marriages are their own business, and they are allowed to make whatever rules they want to make their marriage work. And um, and this rule is. Ha- at the same time, this rule has may might have an effect on the women who work for Pence, but I don't think it's it's it doesn't feel to me like it's this is a world historical event and we've we have a massive issue here. It seems mm-hmm. pretty small, right? It's scaled perfectly to Twitter though to pick it up and echo it and enlarge it. Um, it so uh, it considered across one dimension, it's his right as a husband to decide to have this policy. As a boss, does it really seem to be fair game? I am so torn here between my like firm belief that everybody's marriage is their own domain and they can do whatever the fuck they want in it and my very clear understanding that like my career trajectory would be very different if I happened to have a job in a place where every man I worked with had some version of this rule in place. I remember, David, in 2004, you guys worked from New Hampshire because Hannah was covering uh, the campaign yeah. from there. We went out to and you were my Portland. boss. Yeah, that was and, great. And I was going up to visit a friend for New Year's, and I stopped by where you guys were staying in New Hampshire, and we drove to Portland, Maine, together, and had dinner at like a nice, fancy restaurant. Right. A right. like not undate like restaurant, although right. it was Four Street. Yeah, it was, it was great. like that was a really good meal. Candlelit, delicious. Yeah. And it was just like not a fucking issue. You love food. I love food. I hadn't seen you in yeah. a few months. You were my boss. I was new. Like. That was great. And that was like a time early on in our relationship of like, oh, yeah, we really like each other and we like sharing ideas. And that's like part of how you build a relationship with a colleague that becomes one of trust and care and becomes productive and good. And like there was just nothing weird about that. And I stay at your apartment, for God's sakes. Oh, yeah, you do. While my husband's away. While your husband's away. (laughs) I forgot about that. Um. Yeah. Sometimes I cook you dinner. Jesus. Anyway, like, whatever. And that's not to say that if we were of a different culture and we're in a different place, you wouldn't a, a hypothetical boss wouldn't be capable of having a rule like this and also applying it in a sane way that was fair to women in his workplace. I mean, as 
Ruth Graham pointed out in a piece for Slate, if you actually look at the member, people said, oh, well, how could he have a, you know, any important senior women on his staff with a rule like this? And Ruth Graham looked at the people who worked for him at this time, and it was a number of women. He had a woman press secretary and a bunch of other senior women on his staff. And I also kind of think that different workplaces probably have different rules about eating together. Like, I mean, I don't really know what it's like to be a member of Congress, but it sort of feels like there's just aides everywhere and every meal you go to seems like it's a banquet with 20 people you're trying to raise money at. Like, it doesn't necessarily seem like you'd have to have a lot of, like, working late over the the legislation, whatever. Maybe you need that in every context. But, you know, a lot of people on Twitter were telling stories about, like, oh, I can't imagine if I'd never had lunch. It's like, you don't really need to go out to lunch. I don't know. You can do your work at your desk. Like, it doesn't... I don't know. I'm torn. I'm torn. That's my answer to the question. I'm torn. David, what do you make of the argument that this exposed yet another, you know, kind of uh, divide between the two bubbles of, you know, hermetically sealed bubbles of American life? And out there in flyover country, this is greeted with a complete shrug. This is totally familiar. You wouldn't, you know, do men even, do married men even have women friends was one way of looking at it from that perspective. And then there's, you know, you and Julia who have this you know, you grew up in a liberal, tolerant, gender equal, gender neutral, you know, set of expect within those expectations. Of course, you have a meal. It's, you know, with gender completely set aside. Is this a meaningful cultural divide or is that more hype? I don't know. I, 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 I'm, I'm, with, I, I'm totally with Julia. I'm confused. I, I mean, I thought Ruth made a really great point in her piece also that kind of conservative marriages get it whatever direction they go so if you have a conservative marriage and the the husband is is a is a uh cheating on his wife it's like look at the hypocrisy of these you know of these sanctimonious christians who are going out and cheating and then this guy has this rule set up so that he is kind of controlling behavior that he's worried about and then it's look at these look at these sexist christians who won't give women a fair shake so i think there is this um there's a i think liberals are are uh wrong when they bang on bang on conservative marriages generally in that way um from both directions i i don't know the, i don't know what the, do you think do you i mean do uh, you i i really am puzzled by it i think that there's probably a way to have this edict in your marriage apply it in your professional life without throttling the um ambitions of of female employees you, you just have to be you know these these people seem to have no problem expending a lot of psychic and energy on being scrupulously conscientious about virtually every breath they take i think if you want to give equality of opportunity across gender and have this policy and you have uh, you know that um uh, detailed a psyche when it comes to the moral ramifications of what you do, you could probably be a boss and a husband in both of these regards. Um, I'll tell you where the where the article really made me snag and jerk to attention was for all of the immense piety that um, his wife displays in apparently every facet of her life, the rapidity with which she forgave Trump to access Hollywood tape uh, and the strategic use of that forgiveness within their marriage uh, in order to allow for it, it does make me wonder what role uh, piety really plays in a, in a human life, right? I mean, it is part of the function politically if you're a political spouse you know, to display enormous amounts of rectitude so that you can trade upon it in the instant when, um, you know, your husband's running mate is Donald Trump. That's a great point. Yeah. All right. Well, here, here's here's where I think I come down. 
If you have this rule and you are a fair-minded person who believes that women are capable members of the workforce, you the the shame is to declare it publicly because once you make it known, you create a problem for all the women you work with. Right. I mean, Ruth's piece, which was the most fair-minded and the most clear about the notion that this is a like widespread rule called the Billy Graham rule. I don't think we've mentioned that, but it's, you know, something a prominent evangelical minister declared that many people follow as like a, a, a custom and moray that's familiar to many. And she interviewed an, a bunch of people, young pastors, about how it plays in their lives. And, you know, many of them seemed committed to finding fair-minded ways to administer this. But one of them said that a person in his office said it made her feel like a liability. And I think that's the thing that feels so dehumanizing and shitty about it as a woman is that it just like foregrounds the notion that you are a problem and that somehow your sexuality is a problem for everyone else in a way that just fucked up. Mm -hmm. Like that's just, it's just such a, it's like such an amazing privilege of my life that I just haven't encountered that in my workplaces. And uh, so much so that maybe that's why I'm not as mad about this as I would be if it had been foregrounded more. But like, if you have this rule, keep it the fuck to yourself. That's a great point. Did you guys see the great anecdote about uh, Billy Graham and Hillary Clinton? <laughs> no. Oh, no, no, no. That that uh, at some point Hillary Clinton, and this isn't when she was a senator, so it would be, so he, Billy Graham was in his mid 80s and she invited him to lunch. and. And his response was, you know, I, I, I just don't want to be. It's I just make a habit of not having meals alone with beautiful women like yourself. <laughs> and 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 so they weren't going to have lunch. They weren't going to have this meeting. And then I think they realized, like, well, if they did it in the Senate cafeteria in front of all the world, that it would be okay. <laughs> um, did um the with the other point I would make is that that and this of course is you you make this point whenever any. Anything that one considers trivial becomes an issue. Mike Pence's views on women generally and on reproductive rights are totally appalling. And so, if we want to, if we want to spend time worrying about how Mike Pence is doing wrong things to women, worry about that mm -hmm. more here, than here. yeah, this. I totally agree. Right, but but they're not unrelated. Like in some ways, part of the outrage here is that it seems a symptom of that 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 women are viewed primarily as like beings that have sex with men and produce b babies. Then and become problems for other people than like selves with beings who should be considered first and foremost. Right. I also think it's interesting, like wh what's the dry tinder here? Is it male sexuality or female sexuality? If it's male sexuality and this prophylactic gesture has to be taken uh, on part of that, then why is the burden of it then shifted to women, right? Like I, I think that's a, you know, unexplored aspect of it. It's definitely male sexuality, right? Right. It I is mean, that the men, we can't, we can't, can't control, control we're ourselves. Weak. We're, we're weak. weak. Yeah, right. And, 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 and it's honorable of us yeah. to acknowledge our weakness. Yeah. And therefore the social cost falls entirely to women, right? right. And then the, you know, how do they dress? How do they comport themselves? Suddenly becomes heightened, even though the problem is supposedly our lust. So it's crazy. Anyway. But what, what if it, the problem is our lust, Steve, <laughs> and I'm looking pointedly at you, if, if the problem is our lust, because uh, as we know, Julia and I go to dinner all the time. 
Less, without any problems, but less, I don't. Less, we haven't heard any stories from you. But. Less free, less free <laughs> um, dining. Yeah, but okay. no. What? So what is the? What should? Uh, I mean, the, Julia's solution is you can have this rule, but you just can't speak about it. What is another solution you can have if your belief as as a as Mike Pence is like male male lust is out of control? We can't be trusted. What what should what should a conservative man uh, do in that case? Keep your fucking pants on. Just be have self control and and. Have cons- have self control in a manner that's not at the expense of someone else's selfhood. I don't know. You figure it out. <laughs> like I, I, I right. If it's your weakness, you have to figure it out on your own. Well, I mean, the one point that a couple people apparently compared this instance to something that Tanahasi Coates, you know, liberal lion, wrote a couple years ago about sort of knowing when not to have the second drink and which party not to go to, and and. As someone pointed out, probably also Ruth again, because it seems like we keep quoting her piece, but maybe several people. There's a difference between saying I write off all women or I'm personally aware of which particular beings maybe I do actually lust after a little bit in a way that if the right or wrong combination of circumstances were to happen could lead me to behave in a way that I wouldn't want to. And and to really suggest that like you're going to be completely blindsided by the overwhelming sexuality of a stranger anywhere you go yeah, is mean, different than being like, you know, we've always there's always been a little frisson. Sure. I mean, I, think I the, won't go out for that drink. Yeah, the answer, quick answer is know yourself. Right. Like people have people have problems with alcohol. They have problems with nicotine. They have problems with drugs. They have problems with sex. You know, for for every anonymous, you know, out there, there's a there's a, you know, a, per, a personality you know, weakness, and you have to know what yours are, what yours is, and treat it accordingly. But the, to treat male sexuality as universally and intrinsically uh, lapse prone and predatory to me is a huge projection uh, uh, from in you know one's own weakness to the whole world as a way of excusing it. But anyway, come to Facebook.com/slash/CultureFest. This one is a ripe to- topic for um, uh, internet vociferating. But don't come alone. With- <laughs> Well, you can come alone. Don't come with a young woman if you're a man. That would be terrible. Yeah, keep it lust-free, like a dinner with David Plotz. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse David Plotz. What do you have? Um, Can I get two endorsements? One totally self-serving? Anytime. So my first endorsement, uh, the self-serving one, is so I'm – uh, CEO of Atlas Obscura, which you've probably heard me talk about if you're a political GabFest listener. One thing Atlas Obscura does every year is we have something called Obscura Day, which is an international day of exploration and uh, celebrating and exploring. And we do 170 uh, different explorations around the world, 36 states, 25 countries. It's on May 6th this year. So you should come out and explore with us. Come see uh, an abandoned uh, an abandoned fort. Come Come uh, do a falconry demonstration. Come uh, go climb the rooftops of Johannesburg, South Africa. So that's my first one to check out Atlas Obscura to do that. The other is um, the my the highlight of my cultural weekend was the Big Little Lies finale, uh, which uh, did you guys watch that? I haven't seen it yet. Um, great, an amazing seven episode series. Seven episodes seems to be the sweet spot. Just amazing. It's all based on a book by an Australian novelist called Leanne Moriarty. I think that's how you say her name. And I would just endorse her other books. I've read a couple of hers. I read uh, Truly Madly Guilty and What Alice Forgot. And they're just very, um, they're very agreeable, pleasant 
Beach Reads um, domestic. If you think about The Road, Cormac McCarthy's The Road, and you think what's the opposite of that, it's like Leanne Moriarty. They're, they're, it's extremely um, nice and comfortable. And, you know, they're not beautifully written, but they're highly uh, pleasant to spend time with. Mm. Julie Turner, what do you have? In honor of our Southern topic, today I'm going to endorse a country song that is just fucking great. And oh, I keep playing it on repeat. You love it already? Uh, any country song. Can't wait to hear it. All I'm right. Gonna, I'm going to find it now. The song is called My Church by Marin Morris. Oh. And it is a song about singing along to the radio in the car, singing along to country songs, and how uh, that practice is church, is, is religiously great. And so it's like a road trip song. I mean, it's like has all of the great country music qualities. It's about country music, which is like one of the great topics. It's also about driving. And then it's also about godlessness. And I don't know anything about Marin Morris. I just know it's like the greatest fucking song. My church, Marin Morris. Double endorse. Wow. All right. Um, <clears throat> I'm gonna I'm gonna pound the table, which may be ineffectual because it's felt topped, but um as hard as I've ever pounded the table. So last summer when I was in Maine staring at the ocean, uh, I p- finally picked up the first volume of the Ferrante and I had like, you know, a total harmonic convergence between sun, air, hammock, and literary sensibility. And I, I can't believe I achieved and possibly even surpassed that in Mexico last week. Staring at the pounding surf, someone had left at the beach house a copy of A Chronicle of the Death Foretold by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Has either one of you read it? Didn't no. we discuss it on this podcast? Maybe you were on your leave. I was on leave. Did you read it? Uh, yeah, for this podcast, because <laughs> I wouldn't have read it otherwise. No shit. Oh, my God. Okay, well, well I... <laughs> I, I uh, that's queued up next in my podcast, uh, <laughs> but um, I had never read it. I've got like everyone else as a you know as a nineteen year old backpacker. I read a hundred years of solitude. You know, swooned to it, and then you know successive layers of self hate and self repudiation forced me to think that it was just a part of my late adolescence, and it couldn't really be all that good. Chronicle of a Death Foretold, I think, is one of the best books I've ever ever read. I mean, it's just an astonishing literary performance. It's probably only about, it's a novella. It's probably only about 30,000 words long. And it is, it is word for word, sentence for sentence, an act of literary perfection. I mean, I, I, I cannot tell you it is one of the best books I've ever read. And uh, there's no magical realism in it, in it to speak of. You. Uh, exactly. Yeah, that's how I felt about it. Uh, yes. Uh, um, but um, he is, talk about prolepsis and and foreshadowing prolepsis and 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 fatality, human fatality and time all coming together to tell a story. It, it, I'm not, anyway, I'm, all I can say is I am pounding the felt table and I wish it were making a noise. If you haven't read it, it is up there with, you know, Seize the Day by Saul Bellow or The Great Gatsby. I mean, one of these perfectly executed literary performances. I'm so glad you endorsed that book. I know we discussed it when we talked about Marquez on the podcast, but I kind of did to all the magical realists what I did to the beats as a yeah. young girl is be like, nah, fuck that trunk. genre. Yeah. And then it, it it it's stupid. It's stupid always to be, you know, to categorically reject a genre or a type of literature. And um, yeah, check it out. It's also like quick. Oh yeah, and it's tiny. It's very, very fast. All right, thank you, David. Thank you guys for having me. This was so fun. I will say one other endorsement I have is I love your show. I've been listening to your show for 10 years and I still listen every week That's and so it's nice. great. And it's, right back at you. it's like an essential uh, companion in this new and, and frightening dawn. 
So uh, thank you. Julia, thank you so much. Thanks. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Benjamin Frisch. Our intern is Daniel Schrader. The executive producer of Slate Podcasts is Steve Lichtai. And Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. The Culture Gap Fest, of course, we're part of the Panoply Network, proudly so. You can check out an entire roster of like and unlike shows. They're all wonderful at panoply.fm. Our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest for Julia Turner and David Platz. I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you soon. Can I get a hand?